Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. We're in the advice selling business, and so the best advice wins. And so we take that approach by being the best at the kind of niches where we want to play. In the markets, the only thing that is certain is the importance of great advice and having someone who is experienced and knowledgeable enough to guide you through the toughest times. People are still kind of looking for that smoking gun, but no one's really found anything. So is it a hard landing? Is it a soft landing? I think we haven't landed yet. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. After a couple of turbulent years, there are still lots of unknowns in the market, but today's guest is sharing his insights and predictions based on a wealth of experience grounded in his firm's excellent reputation. We're sitting down with Tom Shadewald, who is a managing director working on Baird's equity capital markets team. Tom is focused on technology and on the technology and services sectors. He joined Baird in 2022 from UBS, where he was a director in their equity capital markets group responsible for, among other things, growing out the firm's capital markets advisory business. Tom started his career at Deutsche Bank in the equity capital markets group, focused on financial institutions and permanent capital. He brings a decade of experience in investment banking across both equity capital markets and corporate finance advisory and he holds a bachelor's degree in economics from Harvard. Let's enter the arena with Tom Shadewald. As a weird kid, when you ask me what I wanted to be when I, when I grew up, I'd always say I wanted to be an inventor. And then I learned uh, engineering is a really hard major. So that went by <laughs> the wayside pretty quickly, but bunch of my friends from college, uh, my older brother already lived in New York, but everyone was moving to New York after undergrad. And part of my interview process, I ran into this one gentleman who happened to work in an equity capital markets group. And it was a job that I had no idea existed, but it, it suits my personality well. And it's really fun to get to engage with all the various parties that work in this industry. So it, it's been a great alignment and I've been doing it my whole career now. And how, uh, how did the Baird opportunity uh, come to you? I was kind of attracted to it, given that it fits with my local roots. Uh, so both my wife and I grew up in Milwaukee, which is where Baird is headquartered. So funny enough, it was like a bunch of my friends from high school and growing up, their parents actually worked there, but I hadn't, I didn't really know a ton about it. Uh, so I'd worked on a deal with them at some point in the last kind of five years, and I gelled really well with the team there. And obviously they've been growing quite rapidly. And so ECM is a big focus of theirs, and that's just an exciting opportunity to join kind of a platform that's looking to grow and has kind of, I don't want to say Midwestern values, but it has just my roots, my roots here. 
I think you're right. And I've been in the business like a really long time and Barrett has always had such great reputation. It's actually a pretty big firm when you talk about the numbers of bankers and stuff. So tell us about Baird. So 70% of the employees actually own the stock. It's a private stock. So there's one stock sale every year. So we take our after-tax hard-earned dollars and put them back into the business. So it's really an owner's mindset, which I think is a lot different than if you work at uh, some of the bigger organizations that are obviously public or whatnot. It really started, interestingly enough, its roots in kind of fixed income capital markets, but now is a full-blown kind of financial services platform. So obviously I'm an investment bank. We have a big public equities business, big wealth management business business, asset management, and private equity. So, and this was, Tom, to your point, something I hadn't realized was how big the firm was and just the footprint too. So there's over 5,000 associates on the platform, 400 investment bankers, and 100 of those dedicated to tech and services exclusively. And so the way to think about kind of our industry bankers is that we go really deep in the places we're really good at. And so we're in the advice selling business. And so the best advice wins. And so we take that approach by being the best at the kind of niche is where we want to play. And then importantly to me, just around our equity capital markets distribution, it's nice to have the, the full-blown sales and trading. Uh, we actually have a big football field trading floor still in Milwaukee, probably one of the few left. We cover 2,000 accounts, it's global, and we cover 700 US stocks. So I think for me, as I thought about it, I like the long-term approach of the management. A lot of the people running the bank have been there for 30, 40 years, and you just don't see that other places a lot of times. And I think they had a true commitment to continuing to hire. And so we've been one of the only firms hiring in the kind of the current cycle. And I think excitingly, we keep adding to our tech talent and have built out a kind of a burgeoning software practice by adding a few key strategic hires uh, over the last year or two. Yeah, like a hun- over 100 bankers in uh, tech and services. That's like a gang. Yeah, it rivals some of the bigger banks. It's interesting because they were geographically dispersed in the United States before that became like the work from home thing more recently. And so we have like 20 different offices across the United States. So some of my colleagues are out in Portland, people down in Florida, obviously a lot out in New York area, Boston, but we have offices everywhere and we actually have bankers in those offices. Yeah, you mentioned it, but I do think it's worth spending another minute on just being an employee owned firm. I'm old enough to remember when like Goldman went public and it was this like amazing partnership and it was all the partners capital. And I'm like, oh, wow, how's this going to work out? I mean, they've obviously created a lot of value over time, but, you know, decisions can be made differently when it's not your money. Right. Yeah, certainly. Like if we do something bad and there's a capital hit, we're all going to feel that as employees and owners of the business. And I think it allows you to escape some of the noise sometimes too, at the end of the day, uh, and really just take that long-term view on things. And so I give all the credit to the people who've been running the the business the last hundred years. I'm just excited to do my small part here moving forward. How did you get to focus on technology and services? I've kind of bopped around a few different sectors. I started in a more non-traditional sector in financial institutions, which is really, uh, it makes you take a macro look at kind of how the businesses work and the economy works because they're really macro-driven businesses. And I think that's always stuck with me. And then when I was at UBS, I really uh, became sector agnostic working in SPACs. Hilariously enough, most SPAC bankers have financial institution backgrounds, but financial institution sector companies don't merge with SPACs, just given how the dilution math works. So I became kind of a jack of all trades. And in ECM, the tech team is always doing the most amount of deals, the most amount of activities, companies they're working with, grab the headlines, exciting. So 
for me, uh, as Barrett is continuing to build out tech and services, it seemed like a natural place for me to kind of step in. And I think it's an exciting time too, with everything that's going on around artificial intelligence, even just the advanced manufacturing trends. There's all sorts of different cool opportunities right now in tech. It's unbelievable. So that's a good segue into talking about kind of the public tech stocks. It's been an insane roller coaster. That's an understatement in the last three years. You know, 2022 was a, a, a disappointment, obviously, but I don't think too many people are caught off guard when markets kind of trended down. I think most people had a pretty uh, reasonable mindset that things had probably gotten a little overheated. I think some people are caught off guard with the big kind of rally to start the year in large cap tech. I think what's the exciting kind of more recent trend for us in capital markets is that we've seen some of that buying kind of trickle into small and mid cap as some of the bigger names from a valuation uh, standpoint have started to get pretty expensive. And so seeing that kind of investor focus kind of back in small mid cap growth, getting some traction here, I think is an exciting trend to continue to monitor that's been coming together in July. You know, I think investors are just hyper-focused on earnings. People are still kind of looking for that smoking gun, but no one's really found anything. So is it a hard landing? Is it a soft landing? I think we haven't landed yet still. So there's a little bit of uncertainty still in the market. On a go-forward basis, Q2 earnings, seeing some more positive comments than if you looked at this time last year, right? And so there's definitely a shift in tone more recently, coupled with, obviously, there has been very good positive performance just in the broader indices. And the reality is, is and this is a personal belief, I still think there's just a ton of money sitting on the sidelines and people are going to be forced to chase performance here potentially in the end of the year. Has there been kind of a playbook for positive performance in the market? I know you mentioned profitability, the annoying old profitability, like companies have to be profitable, but that's a good thing. And what else are you saying as part of that playbook for positive performance in the market? Profitability with low leverage and some history of good performance through a down cycle, that's probably a pretty good trifecta just for baseline. I think tech specifically, if you had an, an AI tailwind, that's probably been some of the, the lowest hanging fruit in terms of getting momentum in your stock. We'll see if that can kind of keep up the pace. I think something important and always comes to front of mind is revenue visibility. So folks are really digging in. It's a stock picker's market. So people are looking in, seeing kind of contracts, how the businesses are really running. And so there's less kind of buy the basket and more kind of stock picking out there. And then and this, this can work for you and against you. And we've seen it in both ways. And it's really strong communication. So I think people who really level set expectations a year ago are probably pretty happy with themselves because the clear communication with the street is now kind of setting them up in a pretty good place uh, for performance kind of heading into the end of the year. And I think if you kind of level set expectations maybe a little lower, it gives you a little more room to ramp on the growth side. Yeah. It's not that complicated. Just how you talk about the future for these companies can really, as you rightly point out, uh, set them up for success or failure. How about the laggards? How about the companies that are, are not really being recognized? What, what's kind of common amongst that group? I guess one, one specific to kind of my universe and area of expertise has been companies that were growing really fast, high-flying kind of stocks, unlimited access to low cost of capital. If you didn't raise money right before things started to deteriorate and you had kind of a low cash balance on your balance sheet, that put you in a very tough spot. Oh, you must be killing yourself right now, right? If you didn't raise money in 21 or something, it's like crazy. And continuing to wait hasn't necessarily been the best strategy either. So 
And then, like I said, kind of poor communication. I think when people have come out and just surprised the market, no one wants surprises right now. And you're going to get a visceral reaction, the downside, uh, at least in the near term. And then I think a lot of people don't think about this when you think about stocks, valuation, people thinking more of science, but like the technical trading aspects of stocks is really important for the big money. And so these less liquid stocks, uh, so maybe they IPO'd, they didn't get the, the second deal done to increase liquidity through the follow on offering. That's definitely hurt some folks just in terms of investability, right? It just limits your buyer base. What indicators do you think are most impactful for first tech stocks today as you see it? I think inflation and interest rates kind of coupled together. So interest rates matter for tech stocks. I think that hadn't been something at the forefront of people's minds in a very long time. And I think there was this thought that the interest rate cycle was going to be very short and that cuts were going to come right around the corner. And that, that just hasn't been the case. And so I think that may have caught people off guard. And then I think when you look at like indicators around who are going to be the winners and losers just from a financial perspective, a lot of people that we talk to are trying to assess the health of corporate balance sheets and IT budgets and advertising spend. It's the financial performance kind of in that down cycle. And so how sticky is your revenue? A lot of people talk about ARR as a concept, but people are really focused on the recurring aspects of that. And so that, that's definitely impacting the bifurcation and the valuations and things that may seemingly look the same, but when you unpeel the onion are not. And then, you know, I think momentum in large cap tech it just grabs those headlines. It gets the retail interest back up and that can cause that follow through buying that you really need to see for a broad based rally. And I, I guess the last thing I would mention is just the uh, the policy exposure heading into next year. Uh, we'll continuing to hear uh, people start to beat that drum. And by this time next year, uh, it should be pretty loud. That can both be positive and negative. And ultimately it usually kind of unwinds pretty quickly right after there's the election's over. You have the new president. With less than half the year left in 2023, every pundit has a prediction on what's in store for the rest of the year and whether we're in for a bull or bear market. Naturally, I wanted to hear what side Tom sits on. The bull case to me is inflation moderates and there's no more hikes. I don't think we need to see cuts yet. No more hikes is, is more than enough for a rally. I think, like I said, harder soft landing. I think recession fears uh, subsiding as we continue to see the labor market be pretty robust. Valuations continuing to re-rate higher. They're probably not going back to maybe where they were a couple years ago, uh, but the momentum there is good. And I think if you couple that with an acceleration in earnings growth into the end of this year and then through next, with the re-rating higher, that double whammy, I think, is, is the big bull case in my mind. And, you know, all that kind of comes together and you see the market kind of reopen from a capital markets perspective and deals start to happen again. Capital is readily available for growth, you know, and that should only further put some fuel on the fire from a growth aspect. And if you ask me what, what the bear case is, I, I guess it's it's really just the opposite of that. To me, too, it's also the bears, they're looking for that next black swan. So we had the deposit crisis earlier this year, which kind of which kind of put a brakes on the market. I think coming out of the financial crisis, obviously, we we're set up to better handle events like that. So I think if these things come up, uh, the bears will keep coming back out. But it's, it's hard for me not to be a bull right now. No, I agree. And when you kind of add it all up, where do you think 
the capital market sentiment is today for tech companies? Yeah, so I usually like to think about it from like a supply and demand perspective. And so right now, I really think there is a paradigm shift going on where demand has started to truly outstrip that supply. And in my view, it's almost a double whammy. Like supply is at a remarkably low lows. There's usually like give or take 100 US IPOs every year of a reasonable size. Last year, there was less than 20. This year, there's been less than 20. Now, yes, there's arguments of other things that could be co- like causing that lack of supply. But I mean, you're talking about 80% lower. At some point, there's going to be a mean reversion. But if you're an account that buys IPOs, I think that side of the equation stayed relatively stable, if not grew during kind of the last market upcycle. So demand grew and supply shrunk 80%. So if you're a markets person, it needs to equalize, right? But it sets it up very nicely if you're an issuer. At the end of the day, that's kind of a market you want to be looking at. Yes, valuations uh, may not be where they were a few years ago, but you set yourself up in a good way. Uh, the IPO is only only the first kind of step, and the real work to be done is once you're public uh, to get that stock continuing uh, to move in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, throughout my career, you know, other than some crazy blow off tops and like 21, for example, like you would go public and you'd build your value in the public market over time. And if you set yourself up and you communicate expectations the right way, you should do that. I think there have been some bubbles, particularly in tech lately, where kind of the owners of the business are like, well, if we don't get the highest possible multiple, you know, we're not going public, which sometimes sets the company up for failure, right? But I I see your point 100%. It's been like crawling through the Sahara Desert in search of like a glass of water the last couple of years. I've never seen anything like it, even after like, you know, the dot-com bust in 2007, 2008. I don't think it's ever been as bad as last year, right? Yeah, I, I don't think it has. And at the end of the day, like maybe we'll dig a little bit deeper into what what's causing that supply. Because I think it's it's interesting to think about that because then you can kind of start to untangle why is this happening and what could potentially turn that around. And so I usually think about supply from a very simplistic standpoint as it relates to companies going public as there's qualified companies that want to go public. And so two big things I would kind of look at. Number one is availability of IPO-able companies, we'll call them. And that can mean a lot of things. And when I look at that indicator, like a lot of supply got pulled forward when the valuations were high. And so when you looked at those, those few uneven years, I mean, like I said, there was 100 on average, right? And it's pretty close to that outside of a few weird years. Uh, in like 2021, I mean, there's over 200, right? So you're talking double on the upside. And so a lot of companies just went public earlier than they otherwise would have to take advantage of the cost of capital. I, I can't really blame them. And then I think another part of that, though, too, is just the desire, like I said, qualified issuers who want to go public. So the desire of these management teams to want to go public uh, waned a little bit. Uh, as the exuberance kind of came out of the market. I think that mindset's starting to to shift a little bit. And then I think an often overlooked point of this is that a lot of companies were told by investors to shift their business model, to take down growth and work towards profitability. There's the practical implication of that is that takes time. Not only does it take time to actually do it, 
that it takes even more time for that to flow through your financials, which is what you're going to want to have done before you go public. And so I think that's been one of those sneaky things in the background that's kind of limiting the availability right now. And then maybe switching to kind of the second big indicator I look at from like a supply standpoint is like relative valuation of public and private markets and availability of capital in those two markets. And so companies tend to want to go public when public market multiples are higher than private markets. That just hasn't been the case for the past kind of 18 months. And mainly because of the private valuations being a lot stickier and taking longer to re-rate lower. I think a lot of that re-rating and kind of the new value expectation is finally setting in in private markets. And it's good to see that kind of occurring as the public markets are, are kind of re-rating higher, right? So that can shift on a, on a dime. And then I think availability of capital, obviously private markets have become a lot bigger over the last 10, 20, 30 years. And I think many private investors were willing to put in additional capital in their portfolio companies to kind of buy down their cost basis. And so instead of using the IPO to be that next capital raise at a lower valuation, they're just going to buy that to lower their own cost basis and then look, look towards better markets. So those would be some of the supply, the supply items I would look at. How about uh, on the flip side, how about kind of the increase in demand, particularly for IPOs? There's willing buyers at fair prices. And I think the second part of that is very important as we think about it today, too. And so what can you look at based on that definition? I mean, Obviously, investment appetite, but also that like selectiveness. So it's been a very selective market in terms of where investors want to participate. But if there is an asset that people like, there's huge appetite. So I think the demand indicator there is very good for the IPOs market specifically, because usually by the time you're coming to the public market, the business is, is of scale its growth trends are heading in the right direction and it makes sense to go public. And I think there's going to be a ton of appetite for that type of quality companies in the coming quarters. I think when you think about like the dry powder kind of sitting on the sideline from an appetite perspective, one thing that we saw in some of these recent IPOs this year is that the, the order books are over 20 times covered on a historical basis. That's extraordinarily high. You would typically want your IPO kind of order book maybe five to 10 times on the high, high side oversubscribed. Obviously, there's huge outliers in this, but 20 times is very healthy compared to the average. And you're seeing some of these large mutual funds start to dip their toes back into the private markets and, and try to chase quality before it even makes it to the IPO market. But I, I see that as a bull indicator them getting involved earlier kind of the life cycle process ahead of the IPO. And you're also seeing a lot of cornerstones show up on the prospectus covers from an anchor perspective. And so, like I said, that the demand side is there, but it is still a little bit selective. And then as finance people, I think we always need to keep in the back of our minds, deal performance matters. People buy these deals to make money. A lot of people don't always say that, but the trading performance is incredibly important the first day, the first week, the first year of being public and any kind of stumble and any kind of earnings or, or quarters can have an impact on the entire kind of IPO market in general. And so I think it's been good to see the companies that have gone public have set reasonable expectations. They've been able to hit them in the first few quarters that we've seen. And if we continue to see that aligned with the demand side, staying healthy and management teams uh, kind of shifting their mindset into the let's start to to go phase, it could set up, uh, I think, 2024 for a very nice market uh, for issuers um, and investors alike. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you 
felt the window might be open in the fourth quarter or if it if it's going to be more uh, 2024 in your mind? Yeah, I think the window's there, Tom, honestly. There's just not enough people ready to access the window um, who are the ones that people, like the stuff people are, are excited about, right? So I think it, it, we really need to, the supply side needs to be fixed. And we're seeing, we're seeing that come together here. Yeah, interesting. What are your like specific recommendations for issuers who might think, hey, I might want to go at the end of this year, next year? So what do companies need to do to kind of get ready for that? Yeah, I mean, the preparation work is absolutely critical. And I'll give myself a, a plug here, but I've been running this IPO reboot series, which is, which is how we started talking, Tom. And I had ICR on that. And that was an idea I had at the end of last year uh, where people need to, you have to start getting ready probably six months before you actually get to the, the starting line of like the, the quote unquote IPO process, which is then kind of another four to six months. And so it's never too early to start if you're, if you're serious and you're going to go public this year, next year, five years from now. I wouldn't, I wouldn't delay. I get people in the room who know what they're doing and to help you through that process and so you can keep running your business. But I'd start, I'd start now. The other interesting thing, which I've heard a few other people talking about and I expect to hear kind of more chatter is like next year is just going to be a really tight IPO window year. It always is in an election year. And so if you do want to go, make sure that you have plan A, which is an earlier window, but you also have plan B, plan C, depending on kind of which way the winds are blowing. Yeah. Tom, um, when you talk about a tight window with the election, what would that window be in your mind when you kind of look at the calendar in 20 and 24? Like, is it second quarter, third, you know, cause like you have to get your financials audited for the end of the year and then go like, what would the window be in your mind? It's always good to, to launch off end of year financials. It makes it easy for the investors to kind of look at the business and it's an attention game too at the end of the day. So the easier it is for them to view their opportunity, the better. I think the summer is always difficult. It's always challenging, but I think we'll probably see a more active summer than we do on a historical kind of basis. And then I think the tight window is going to be that, that fall window. And it's just a risky one to target at the outset. Uh, just given kind of the election noise only gets louder and louder and louder every week. And I think like the noise this time around is just so crazy. It's like beyond insane. And every year out does the past, it seems like in recent history. So I'm sure this one, sure this one's going to get interesting. Yeah, for sure. Maybe we close on a, on a question, you know, given your career as an ECM banker, did you have a mentor or, you know, did you get some advice along the way that stuck with you? Yeah. I've had a ton of mentors, so thank you. If any of you are listening to this, without you, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be where I am today. One of the things that's really stuck with me, though, and I think about if I'm ever having a hard day, is an early mentor, like my first few weeks on Wall Street, he'd always walk into the big room where you sit the management team before they launch their IPO roadshow. And they're sitting there, they're a little bit nervous. They've done testing the waters, but it's not the same. They're gonna to present to the sales force of all the banks. And the first thing he would tell these executives is, don't forget you're selling stock. And that's always stuck with me because it's just such a simple way of framing what's about to happen. Yeah, it's just, you're literally gonna sell stock. And it's, it's always been cool to me, and this is why I love this job, uh, is that the IPO kind of process of capital markets, that's like the last place where the like, human beings are on telephones, meeting in person, 
and actually selling stock like human to human. And you go through this process where you go door to door uh, back in the day or Zoom to Zoom now, selling yourself uh, in these human interactions. And you actually build this book of demand and you find through kind of all these different other people's uh, thoughts on valuation, what the true clearing price is really for the first time, because that doesn't really happen in private markets. Private markets are much more club type deals where a few people are probably setting the price or even the, just the lead investor sets the valuation. In public markets, it really is like groupthink and it's exciting and the human element to it has always been fun. And for anyone uh, who's listening, who may have not slept last night, just remember that at the end of the day, we're selling stock. It's that simple. Yeah. If you're managing someone else's money, you know, I want to look at the man or woman running that company and I want to look into the whites of their eyes and see if I like them and I trust them, you know, and when you see thousands of management teams, you actually kind of get that skill. Yeah. And, and I think part of what you just said is the reason why I, I was kidding Zoom to Zoom. We're actually seeing a lot more in-person activity here too, picking up. And I, I expect that uh, to become increasingly important for the success of deals. Baird has the scale, experience, and focus to provide stellar counsel. And the fact that the employees own the firm speaks volumes about their success and commitment. Welcome to the arena. We're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Tom for joining me today, and in particular for sharing his insights about the last couple of years and how we may be coming out the other end. We're all definitely looking forward to seeing what comes next. This is Tom Ryan. I'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.